I was, I was about to just say, all those of you who think Kyle has done a good job, just keep your hands. No, honestly. At Apologetics Press, we get all kinds of calls from various different kinds of people wanting to know various different things. We get questions about the inspiration of the Bible, the existence of God. Sometimes we get calls of people that say we're idiots, that we need to stop lying to people. Other times we get calls from people who have read our materials and appreciated them. This particular call came, I'm thinking, about uh, nine years ago, maybe now. And it was a preacher from West Virginia. And he called and he said, I need some help. And the worker that was with me, Eric Lyons, I believe, took this call. And he said, well, what can we do for you? He said, well, let me tell you what has happened here at this congregation and see if you can help me. He said, just last year we had a young man who, by all accounts of everybody in the congregation, was one of our strongest, most spiritual young men. Said he had grown up in the Lord's Church. Said he was a leader in the youth group. Said any time that you needed some help with a, a, someone to lead singing, someone to lead a prayer, if you needed somebody to do a brief devotional, this young man would do it. Said he was 17 years old. He enrolled in a state university about an hour from his home. And in that state university, there was a class called Comparative Religions. And he went to that class. And the professor in the Comparative Religions class, his sole purpose, apparently, was to destroy the faith of any person who came in there thinking that the Bible was God's Word and that the Bible has the truth in it. And so, at the very beginning of class, he said, I know lots of you have probably always been taught that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. No, lots of you have probably been taught that it doesn't make mistakes, that it's inerrant. He said, but that's simply not true. In fact, the Bible is filled with mistakes. He said, there are contradictions all throughout the Bible. One writer will say something over here. Another writer will say something over here. They are contradictory statements. They cannot be reconciled. There's no possible way that a perfect God inspired the 66 books of the Bible. And to prove that to you, I'm going to give you this packet of papers. And so he passed out a packet of about five papers stapled together. And at the top of that packet was the title, 70 Factual Discrepancies in the Bible. And so for several weeks, he took those young 17-year-olds on a journey through 70 factual discrepancies in the Bible, trying to defeat their faith. Maybe I should say successfully defeating the faith of at least one of his audience because that 17-year-old man, young man who had been a strong member of that church there in West Virginia came home and he said, how come I've never heard this? How come I didn't know that the Bible was filled with factual discrepancies? Why is it that you didn't tell me that there were contradictions in the Bible? He said... I can't believe in a book that contradicts itself so much. And he threw that packet of papers on the preacher's desk, in essence, and said, I won't be back at church. 
and subsequently, to our knowledge, has never darkened the door seen. The idea that the Bible contains discrepancies or contradictions is one of the most often used ideas against the existence of God and the inspiration of the Bible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I debated a man by the name of Dan Barker in 2009 at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, our debate topic was the existence of God. And the proposition was, I know that the God of the Bible exists. And his statement was, I know that the God of the Bible does not exist. That's what he was trying to prove, and that's what I was going to prove, the very opposite. I know that the God of the Bible does exist. And so, we each had opening statements of 15 minutes. Now, Dan Barker is probably the most world-renowned atheistic debater that is alive today. In fact, in his book, Godless, he says that he has been in more moderated debates than any atheist in the history. And to our knowledge, that is true. I think now his total is up to about 90 moderated debates. He has written several books. He is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is the largest group of unbelievers on any type of registry in North America. they got about 18,000 members in this Freedom From Religion Foundation. So the man knows what he's doing as far as you're talking about atheistic debating. For 10 of his 15 minutes in the introductory statements where you're supposed to put the strongest arguments that you have, for 10 of those 15 minutes, he spent two-thirds of his time rattling off alleged Bible contradictions where one passage says this and another passage says that and those are contradictory. Where this writer wrote this and another writer wrote that and those passages are supposed to be contradictory. For two-thirds of his time. Now, if you're supposed to put your strongest arguments in your opening statements and we're dealing with the existence of the God of the Bible and the number one atheistic debater in the country, by many people's account, uses two-thirds of his time to rattle off alleged Bible contradictions, I think you see how important the atheistic community thinks that this argument is. And so, we need to deal with it. Does the Bible contradict itself? You see, that's a very real question that we need to answer, because if it legitimately does contradict itself, we're in trouble. If it is the case that Matthew wrote something, and it is so worded or stated, and Mark wrote something else, and it's so worded or stated that those two statements cannot be reconciled, that one of those statements says something obviously very different and contradictory to the other statement, then we do have a problem. Because we contend correctly that the God of the Bible is perfect, that the God of the Bible is all-knowing, that the God of the Bible doesn't make mistakes. And so if you've got a legitimate contradiction, then we would have to say that God, the perfect, all-knowing being who doesn't make mistakes, simply couldn't have inspired both books. So, in one sense, their argument is right, Hey, if there are legitimate contradictions in the original autographs of the Bible, then we've got trouble. In another sense, 
what we're going to see is they've been trying for, I'm not talking decades, I'm talking centuries to find a single legitimate Bible contradiction and that hasn't been found to date and there's a good reason that it hasn't been found to date. It's not for lack of looking. What we're going to see is it hasn't been found to date simply because there's not one. Now, you and I both understand, however, that sometimes we've been reading through the Bible and we'll read one statement and it sounds a whole lot different than another statement somewhere else. And lots of times we even very faithful to the text, even very understanding that God... We will wonder how in the world these two statements can be reconciled. And that's legitimate. It's something we need to think about, something we need to consider. I'm going to give you a couple of the 70 factual discrepancies that this professor handed to his young 17-year-old student. And I'm going to show you just how easily these can be dealt with if you take them one at a time. Now, let me tell you what most of the time happens. Most of the time, you're not given a Bible contradiction one at a time. In fact, most of the time, you're given a list of several hundred of them. I was speaking in Arkansas, I think it was, and a young man, I was delivering a seminar that I had done here two or three years ago on creation, evolution, dinosaurs, etc. One young man came up to me afterward. He said, well, I know what you're saying about the creation. I know what you're saying about that. But he said, with a little grin on his face, he said, but you've got to admit the Bible's full of mistakes. Now, I, I guess he didn't really know who he was talking to because, no, I don't have to admit that the Bible's full of mistakes and never have admitted that and don't think I ever will because I've never seen a single mistake in the book. But I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, there's just so many Bible contradictions. I said, could you show me one? He opened a three-ring binder and shoved a piece of paper in my face that had, I'm going to say it was about 3.2 font size, and there was a list of about a thousand Bible contradictions on this single page of about 3.2 font size, and he opened it up and held it up to me and said, look at this. And I looked, he said, see, all kinds of contradictions and stuff in the Bible. I said, I said well, hold on just a second. I said, could you open that up again and let's look at that a little more closely? And so he opened it back up and I said, now could you show me one of these that you think is a legitimate Bible contradiction? And he said, well, you know, I just, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't looked at any one specifically. There are just so many of them. There are just so many of them. Well, let's see what happens when you do look at them specifically. I'm going to give you one that was on the list of 70 factual discrepancies. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn in those Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you're going to read, this is a passage about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is talking about the resurrection. He's explaining what happened when Jesus came back. And as you look right there in verse 5, the Bible says that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and afterward he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain alive, but some have fallen asleep. A euphemism for some of them have died. Now, he gives you a couple things there. Number one, he was seen by Cephas. What's Cephas' other name? Peter or Simon. Then he was seen by the twelve. Now, the person who is claiming that this is a contradiction says, Aha! 
you got a problem if you're a Christian who says the Bible's the inerrant word of God. How in the world was he seen by the twelve? You say, what do you mean by that? Then he takes you over to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, if you were to go there, you would see that Herod gets pretty mad at the church. And what does he do in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Well, the text tells you, verse 2, Then Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so the skeptic says, there you go. 1 Corinthians 15 says he was seen by Peter and the twelve, but Acts chapter, two verse, Acts chapter 12 verse 2 says that James is dead. And so, that's a contradiction they would claim. That he couldn't have been seen by the twelve because one of them was dead. You ever thought about that? Now, let me say, if you've never thought about it, it sounds difficult to handle. In fact, there's a proverb that says the first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and answers him. But what happens often is that the skeptic is the first one to bring this up. He presents this as a legitimate Bible contradiction and the person listening to him has never thought through it. At first it sounds plausible. Hey, yeah, it looks like a contradiction. And so they buy it hook, line, and sinker without ever really giving it a critical thought. Now, let's critically look at this. And what we mean by critically is just analyze it so that we can understand what's actually being said. The first thing we need to just ask real simple is, is it the case that sometimes numbers lose their numeric value and are just used as names? Let me tell you what I mean by that. The college football scene has a number of different SEC, Big Ten, etc., a number of different conferences. Now, if I were to ask you the simple question, how many teams are in the Big Ten Conference? What would you say? Well, it changes all the time, doesn't it? In fact, at the beginning of the Big Ten Conference, there were 10 teams. But then they moved to 12 teams, and I think then 13 and 14, and then one or two dropped out. And so I don't really know how many teams are in the Big Ten Conference right now. But the number 10 has lost its numeric value. And now it's just simply a title for the conference, regardless of how many teams are in the Big Ten Conference. So when ESPN announcer comes on and talks about a team that's in the Big Ten Conference, you don't call them up and say, you are a liar. That is not true. You just said Big Ten Conference, and there are 13 teams in the Big Ten Conference. I can't believe you would mislead the American people like that. We don't do that, do we? Because Big Ten no longer has a numeric value. It now simply is a name for something. We do that in groups often. Let me give you an example. The Dirty Dozen. You ever seen the movie The Dirty Dozen? It's an old movie about a group of military, oh, they were prisoners, and the commander went to them and said, hey, there's a mission. Most of you are going to die, but if you don't die, then you'll get a pardon. Anybody that wants to go can. So 12 of them volunteer. You know, in the movie The Dirty Dozen, Several of the dirty dozen get killed. So after the first one gets killed, is the name of the group changed to the Elite Eleven? No, after another one gets killed, is it the Terrific Ten? No. You see, even when one or two of them die, you would still refer to the ones who are alive as he's a member of the dirty dozen. Even though several of them, I think about six or seven of them, die. And so the same with the Magnificent Seven. You ever seen the Old Western, the Magnificent Seven? 
one of my favorite old Western movies ever. I think about three of the Magnificent Seven die, but it's not like you change the name of the Magnificent Seven to the Magnificent Four. You still keep the name even though it's lost its numeric value. So that's a very common thing that's done on a regular basis. Let me tell you, I was delivering this information to a congregation, a big congregation in Birmingham, Alabama, and a guy came up to me and said, you know, we almost had a split over that. I said, what do you mean it's a, a split? He said, you know, where, where stuff takes on a, a name quality and the, the number is not really a numeric value anymore, it's a name. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, let me tell you, a lady came up to me in our congregation. She pulled me aside one day and she said, look, we got a problem in this congregation. And the guy said, we do? He said, yeah, yeah. She said, yeah, we got a real problem. She said, I ordered 82 by fours from this brother who sells lumber in our congregation. And he dropped them off at my house. And I measured them. They're not two inches by four inches. She said, they're little than, littler than two inches by four inches. They were only about three and five-eighths of an inch by one and five-eighths of an inch. And he's cheating people out of lumber. And we need to do something about it. Well, the guy who was telling me this story said, you know, he almost had to, you know, not laugh. Because he understood that in the lumber world, anything that's three and five-eighths of an inch by one and five-eighths of an inch counts as a two-by-four. It doesn't have to be exactly two inches by four inches. Lots of times it was two inches by four inches until it was planed and sanded and dried, etc. But as long as it's at least three and five-eighths of an inch by one and five-eighths of an inch, it counts. It can be bigger than that, but it can't be smaller than that, and it's not in a two-by-four. So if someone were reporting that Kyle Butt got hit in the head by a two-by-four... And then later someone went back and had that two-by-four as a piece of evidence and measured it and stood up and said, that's not true. The report is invalid. That is not a two-by-four. It's a three-and-five-eighths of an inch by one-and-five-eighths of an inch. That person lied. Well, we would see that you just can't do that because sometimes a word loses its numeric value and takes on the quality of a name. Could that be what's going on in 1 Corinthians 15? Absolutely, positively. That's not a problem whatsoever. Do you think after James died, and then after Peter died, do you think John and the rest of the living apostles were still called one of the twelve? Yeah, most likely they weren't, because they were... Do you think when Paul was added to the group of apostles, they changed it to one of the thirteen? No. They still probably called him one of the twelve, just because it didn't carry a numeric value anymore. Now, we're going to stop right here and make this statement that's very important. When you're dealing with an alleged contradiction, you don't have to have the answer. In fact, sometimes there might be two, three, four, five possible answers that all fit. All you have to do is have a possible answer. You see, if you were in a court of law and someone said, this is contradictory, and then we showed something like I just showed you, in the court of law, that would be enough to show that, okay, this cannot be proven to be contradictory. You see, what the skeptic has to do is prove there is a contradiction. What we've just done is said, no, you can't prove that because there's a possibility, and that possibility is a number lost its numeric value and took on the case of a title. Makes perfect sense. It's not the only one we've got. In fact, I'm going to give you another one. This one you use all the time, probably, even though you don't know that you use it. It's called prolepsis. Now, that's a big fancy name for something that you'll recognize very easily. Prolepsis is when you place 
a person or thing's current status on it at a time when it didn't have it. Now, at first, there again, sounds kind of complicated, but let me show you what I mean. Suppose that I'm telling you about my wife, Bethany, and I'm explaining that she is the most wonderful wife in the whole world, and I wish you could see her because she is just so great. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture of her, and I flip up on the screen a picture of my wife when she's six years old, and I say, wasn't she the cutest little six-year-old girl that you have ever seen? My wife was a cute little six-year-old girl, and then I give you a picture of her when she was 12, and I say, there she is at 12, and I show you pictures all the way up until now. Now, when I said, that's my wife, and I showed you a picture of her when she was six years old, was she my wife when she was six? No. She wasn't my wife when she was six. She's my wife now and has been for the last 16 years. But she wasn't my wife when she was six or when she was 12 or when she was 18. I'm taking a status she has now and projecting it back to a time when she didn't have that status. But every one of you would recognize it would be perfectly legitimate for me to say, that's my wife when she was six years old. We use prolepsis all the time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, approximately when was it written? Do you know? Well, you're looking at 55 A.D. or so. When did Jesus come back from the grave? You're looking at about 33 or so, 30 A.D. 20 years or more has passed since Jesus' resurrection. In that 20 years or so, what has happened in the apostolic situation? Oh, you'll remember there in Acts chapter 1, where Peter stands up and says, by transgression, Judas fell out of favor and he killed himself. But now we need to replace Judas. And so they pick two people and the one that they eventually choose to replace Judas was Matthias. So how long had Matthias been an apostle? He'd been an apostle for 20 years or so now. In fact, one of the stipulations for being an apostle was that you had to have gone in and out with the apostles from the baptism of Jesus by John, and you had to have, remember what the other stipulation was? Seen the resurrected Lord. And so Matthias has been an apostle for 20 years. Would it be legitimate to say that he is a member of the Twelve and that he was one of those who saw the resurrected Jesus using prolepsis? of his status as an apostle now, projecting it back to a time just before he came, became an apostle? Yeah. So, you know, at first it looks like you got a contradiction until you really stop and give it a little thought. And then when you really stop and give it a little thought, you realize you don't only just have one option here. You've got two, and there are possibly, if you wanted to really, really think farther through it, you could probably come up with a couple more. Now, this is about as far as I've ever thought through it, and I've never thought I needed another couple more, but if I felt like I did, I could probably come up with a few more. That's just two that you can come up with fairly easily. Now, let me show you what happens when you try to nail down this argument. Lots of times the skeptic comes and says, well, you got all kinds of contradictions. You say, okay, great, just give me one. They say, okay, here, I got one for you. They give it to you. One of the seventy, one of the strongest seventy that this professor has got to give to his seventeen-year-old student. You deal with it, and we just deal, dealt with it in five minutes. Yeah, but then they say, "All right, you might have answered that one, but what about?" Then they'll give you another. 
Now, before they give you another one, you need to stop and get them to recognize what has just happened. Gave you a chance to give me one of your strongest. You gave me this one. We answered it. So what does that mean to you? You know, you didn't even, lots of times, the skeptic didn't even check up, didn't even assess whether this was a legitimate... Once you answered, they just went immediately to the next one. Now, what happens if you can deal individually with every single one of those and show that every single one of them isn't a legitimate contradiction? Lots of times what I hear from the skeptical community is, yeah, but there's just so many of them. Yeah, but there's just so many of them, but every single one of them individually you can deal with and show it's not a legitimate contradiction. It's kind of like the guy who was selling neck bones down at the grocery store. He was buying neck bones for a dollar a pound. He was selling them for 90 cents a pound. People were just slamming his grocery store to buy neck bones for 90 cents a pound. It was cheaper than they'd ever seen them sold anywhere. Guy came up to him. He said, man, you got all kinds of people in your grocery store today. How are you getting that done? He said, well, I'll tell you. I'm buying neck bones for a dollar a pound. I'm selling them for 90 cents a pound. The guy said, you're doing what? He said, yeah, I'm buying them for a dollar a pound. I'm selling them for 90 cents a pound. The guy said, how in the world are you ever going to make any money? He said, I'm selling so many pounds of them that the volume is going to make me rich. Now look, if you're losing 10 cents a pound on every pound of neck bone, doesn't matter how many thousands of pounds you sell, guess what? You're losing money on every one. Now, if the skeptic presents to you hundreds of alleged Bible contradictions, but each individual one is no good, then you can't say there are just so many of them and make an argument out of that. So, you've got to deal with them individually. And when you do deal with them individually, you realize that even though you just saw a sheet of a thousand in 3.2 font that you had to have a magnifying glass to read, not a one of these is actually holding any weight. Let me give you another example of that. On this sheet was probably the most famous alleged Bible contradiction that there is. How did Judas die? I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and you're going to look in verse 18. Acts chapter 1, verse 18, you're going to see Peter in his discussion about finding a replacement for Judas, say in verse 18, Now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. It's a pretty violent picture, isn't it? You've got a man who falls into this field, and all of his guts bust out. If I were to ask you, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 18, how did Judas die, what would you say? If I were to give you a multiple choice, Judas died by shooting himself, Judas died by drowning himself, Judas died because he fell into a field and his guts busted out, Judas died by being trampled by an elephant. Out of those four options, which would you say, how did Judas die? He died because he fell into a field and his guts busted out. Pretty easy to understand. Now turn to Matthew chapter 27, Verse 5. You'll probably recognize this passage in Matthew 27, 5. And in Matthew chapter 27, 5, you're going to probably remember that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
He brings the money back into the temple, throws it on the floor, the Bible says. And then, as you're reading right there, starting about verse 4, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So the skeptic says, there you go. Says that's a legitimate contradiction. There's no way you can get out of that. One of them says Judas died because he fell into a field and his guts busted out. Another one says Judas died because he hanged himself. You can't get around that. Well, I was uh, studying the Bible with a young man in the county jail there in Montgomery, Alabama. We've been studying for months. I had known him before he went into the county jail there, and that's why I made the connection with him in jail. There is a large Muslim population lots of times in your jail system. And we had been making real good progress, I thought. But one day I showed up. He said, well, he said, I just don't really think we need to be studying the Bible anymore. I said, why? He said, what's the problem? He said, well, you didn't tell me there were contradictions. I said, no, I don't think that there are. What do you mean by that? He said, well, right here. And he took me to Acts chapter 1, then Matthew chapter 27. He said, this is a contradiction. He said, in one place it says Judas fell in the field and guts busted out. In another place it says he hanged himself. There's no possible way these two verses can be reconciled. And I just don't think it's going to do us any good to read the Bible anymore. This is what he had been hearing from the Muslims in the prison system. Because the Muslims believe in the God of the Old Testament, but they have a very serious problem with lots of things that the Bible says. And so they often try to say that it's got contradictions and errors and mistakes in it. And so I said, well, let's look at this. Before we write the Bible off as a book filled with contradiction, let's ask ourselves a simple question. You guys didn't know what I just did to you, but it's what the skeptic does to you on a fairly regular basis. You just let me probably, you, you might have caught it. I hope you did, but if I was sitting in that pew right there, I probably wouldn't have caught it as fast as I'm trying to move here. You might have seen that I added something to what the text actually says. I ask you this question. How did Judas die? Now, if you will read either one of those accounts in Matthew 27, 5, or in Acts 1, 18, you will notice that neither one says Judas died because, or this is what caused the death of Judas. It just gives you two statements about what happened to Judas, neither of them saying, how did Judas die? Now, at first, that might not sound all that important until you ask this question. Real simple. Do lots of people try to hang themselves in the United States of America and not effectively do the job? Yeah, in fact, you might know that as far as suicide goes, hanging is one of the least effective forms of suicide that there is. So if we were to say, could a person hang himself and not die? Does that happen? Yes. Does the text in Matthew 27, 5 say Judas died because he hanged himself? No. Now let's ask the next question. There again, it's fairly simple. The next question is, does the text in Acts chapter 118 say Judas was alive when? It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say Judas was alive when he fell into a field and his entrails gushed out. It doesn't say that he was killed because he fell into a field and his entrails gushed out. 
Now, what I find to be so ironic is that this is one of the most often used alleged Bible contradictions by any person who claims not to believe in the Bible and claims that the Bible is full of errors. They use this. Almost every single one of them poly parrots this alleged contradiction. And hold on just a second. Let's look and see if this isn't exactly what you would have expected to happen if Judas really did hang himself. Here's what I mean. You think Judas went to his fellow apostles and says, all right, guys, I'm going to hang myself. I'm going to hang myself right here on this particular tree, and I want you guys to come make sure that I've done an effective job in two or three days. You think that happened? No. In fact, you and I both understand that he would be trying to do this secretly, He would be trying to go and hang himself, most likely, without telling a single person what had happened. Now, let's say he did that. Let's say he took a robe and he went and found a tree in this field of blood and didn't tell anybody, and he hung himself. And he stayed there for a day, two, three, four. Sun rises in the morning. It's the hot sun of the Palestinian climate and... What does it start doing to a person who is hanging by his neck on a tree limb somewhere? If you've ever seen a cow, maybe that you've come upon in a field that has been sitting there for two or three days, you'll understand that when that sun starts beating down on that dead cow, it starts to decompose that cow, and the decomposition process releases all kinds of gases in that cow, and that cow begins to bloat, and it gets excessively large. The other day I was watching a video of a whale that had been on a beach in Japan, and it had been lying there beached for several days, and they loaded it up on a trailer. It was a massive, humongous trailer. I mean, the trailer was, this was probably about a 90-foot whale, I think, and weighed several tons. It had been sitting out in the hot sun, baking dead for about three days, maybe more, and they loaded it up on this trailer. They were driving it through the middle of a Japanese city, and they hit a bump, and the whale literally exploded, just all over the entire city street. One of the most disgusting things you could probably see, the people who were trying to clean it up were gagging, had stuff all over them, because the whale blew up because of the decomposing gases that had filled its cavity, and when it hit one bump, that's all it took for that decomposition to take that brittle skin of that whale and literally explode it. Now, what would have happened if Judas hung himself hung there for two or three or four days, and the decomposition process had set in, probably his neck no longer would hold up the weight of his body, and he falls, or maybe the tree limb that he's hanging on breaks after two or three or four days of his weight pulling on it, and he falls headfirst into that field, and the decomposition process causes his body cavity to explode and his guts bust out. Makes perfect sense. That's exactly what you would expect. Now, it's a violent picture, isn't it? Why do you think God included that? Why do you think he put in the Bible that Judas not only killed himself, but he fell into a field and his guts busted out into that field? Probably to show you the end result of sin. To show you how bad it can get when a person turns away from his God. To show you that you don't want to end up like Judas. But I'll tell you what, there is not. There's not a legitimate Bible contradiction 
in that scenario. In fact, I used to live in Denver, Colorado. In Denver, Colorado, there's a restaurant called Casa Bonita. I don't know if you've ever been to Casa Bonita. But there in Casa Bonita, when I was a little kid, I guess I was probably about three, and I remember this. You'd be sitting there eating your meal, and all of a sudden, there was a a scene in the middle of the restaurant that was made up to look like an outdoor waterfall scene. And there was beautiful water pouring over this waterfall, and there was a, a pool in the middle of the restaurant. And in the middle of your meal, two people would come out on either side of the waterfall. They were probably, oh, you're looking at about from this wall to that wall apart. One of them was a cowboy dressed in white. One of them was a cowboy dressed in black. And they started yelling across the waterfall to each other. Well, it it got into a verbal altercation, and they were wearing pistols, and they decided they were going to have a duel. And so you're sitting there eating your burrito, thinking, oh, this is great stuff going on. You're about to make it to your sopapilla, and then you realize it's about to be a duel. And so you see that the cowboy in black says, draw. Cowboy in white says, no, you draw. And boy, they get ready to draw, and the cowboy in white draws a little faster, and he shoots the cowboy in black. Of course, they're professional actors and divers, and there's no real shooting going on. But the cowboy in black black buckles over like he's been shot in the abdomen. And then he falls off his cliff, and at first he's like, he fell off his cliff. But then he does about three or four dives and turns and twists, and he's a professional diver and shoots into the pool. And he stays under the water for, oh, you know, five or ten seconds. Then he comes back out, and everybody claps for him. You eat your soap of pee, and you check out. Now, suppose that really did happen. And we wrote, the cowboy in black was shot in the abdomen. Can you die by being shot in the abdomen? Yeah. Lots of people do it on a fairly regular basis. They die because they get shot in the abdomen. But can you live through being shot in the abdomen? Yeah. Lots of people do it. It's not a death sentence. You can get shot in the abdomen and not die. So if we wrote the cowboy was shot in the abdomen, we hadn't really said anything about his life or his death. We just made a statement that he was shot in the abdomen. Now if we said the cowboy sunk to the bottom of the pool, can you die by sinking to the bottom of a pool? Yeah. Can you sink to the bottom of a pool and not die if you come back up in time? Certainly. So just because the cowboy died by sinking to the bottom of the pool, I mean, the cowboy sunk to the bottom of the pool and some people can die that way, doesn't mean he died that way. So if we wrote the cowboy was shot in the abdomen and he sunk to the bottom of a pool, both of those statements would be accurate. They'd be very different. But you know what they wouldn't be? They would not be contradictory. You see what we're saying here is that when you start to analyze each individual one, you realize that they're not legitimate Bible contradictions. I'm going to give you one more. The reason I'm going to give you this one more is because when I was probably in ninth grade, this gave me the hardest time of anything that I knew. My mom said I was a literalist. And she said me and Amelia Bedelia would have been great friends. You you remember Amelia Bedelia? Amelia Bedelia was, if you wrote something down, she did exactly what you said to do. And she was, I think it was the tailors, who the people who hired her, and the tailors had told her to dust the furniture. And she she thought, that is odd. At my house, we undust furniture because we don't like dust on it, and so we take the dust off. But I I guess if people want the furniture dusted, we can do what we can. So she goes in the bathroom, and she finds some dusting powder, and she dusts the furniture and thinks that she has done a great job, exactly what they've asked her to do. And then one of the statements is, you need to dress the chicken. She thinks, why in the world would anybody want their chicken dressed? But 
I'll dress the chicken if they want. So she makes this little Von Trapp family singer outfit that she puts on the chicken. So when the tailors come in, they, they look all over the house. There's dust everywhere, dusting powder from the bathroom. The chicken has little clothes on it. And they can't understand why their message just didn't come across clearly to a maybe did. Well, let me take you to Acts chapter 9. Go to Acts chapter 9. And you're going to read a statement about the men who were with Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, if the bell rings, stick with me. We're going to get done just as it rings, so don't go anywhere. Look in verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Quick question. Did the men who were with Paul hear a voice? According to Acts chapter 9, verse 7, did they hear a voice? Okay, there's no getting around that. Yes, they did. The text says they did. It says they heard a voice. Now go to Acts chapter 27, 22, rather. Acts chapter 22, verse 7. Acts chapter 22, verse 7, here's what the text says. It's going to be kind of surprising to you. Actually, verse 9, rather. Acts chapter 22, verse 9. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light, and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, how in the world do you deal with that? Acts chapter 9, 29, verse 7 says, The men who were with him heard a voice but didn't see anybody. Acts chapter 22, 9 says, They did not hear a voice. Now, at first, that looks just straight up contradictory. It looks like there's not one thing you can do with that. Here's the problem. Do you use the word hear sometimes to mean different things? Yes, sometimes you do. Suppose that you're at a ball game and an announcer comes over and he says, we'd like to thank you for being here tonight. And you look over at your wife and you say, did you hear the announcer say something? She said, yeah, I heard him. And you say, did you hear what he said? She says, no, I didn't hear him. Well, how could you say I heard him and no, I didn't hear him? Well, you know, sometimes we use the word hear to mean understand. When Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, what did he mean? He who has ears to hear, let him detect the vibrations of my voice to his ear? Or hear a bell that just rings, even though you're still going to sit here and listen? No, what he meant was, he who has ears to hear, let him understand what I'm saying. Did you know if you were reading this in the original language, in fact, I think it's the RSV, Revised Standard Version, and the ESV, if you're reading this in the original, the word hear is spelled differently so that in one instance, in Acts 22, it means did not understand the voice that they heard. And so this is not a contradiction that one says they heard it and another says they didn't hear it. This is a statement that one says they heard the sound, but they didn't understand the words or the meaning. Not a contradiction, and yet... This is three of the most often used Bible contradictions that we have just dealt with in 45 minutes. We could do it all day long. All day long. You know what we find out? There's not a single legitimate Bible contradiction or mistake in these 66 books. And that demolishes one of the strongest, well, I wouldn't even say strongest, one of the most used arguments that the atheistic community has. Thank you for being so patient. Good to see you this morning.